0: Today on Money and Me, Gordon Haskett has double-upgraded Airbnb to a buy. It's underperformed for most of this year, so where is Airbnb heading towards and what does it say about hospitality in general? Also, from a valuation standpoint, are major Chinese companies losing value because of Beijing's crackdown on data security? Kathy Woods from ARK Invest has been warning of a valuation reset for major Chinese companies. Uh, to what extent does our featured guests agree with that and, Apple shares. Apple uh has announced that it is dipping its toe into the foray of BNPL. Buy now pay later. Is BNPL the next wave to take the US by storm? We're gonna figure all that out with our featured guest today, Arun Pai, who by the way has another cutie pie at home. Congratulations on on the birth of your firstborn.
1: <laughs> Thank you so much, Michelle.
0: <laughs> and how are things for little one? And is it a boy or a girl?
1: It is a girl. Her name is Avia. And things uh, luckily are going quite well. Six weeks and counting. So. Oh,
0: wonderful. I think this is the first time. This is uh, her radio debut, you know.
1: It is indeed. First time her name is announced. I I am recording this. I'll say it back to her when she can understand this. Yes, we
0: curated (laughs) this show just for her, at least this first part. Because we want to ask you whether becoming a father has made you think differently about your finances? Has it made you reflect about money in a new way? Are you planning for retirement differently, Arun?
1: (laughs) Given the cost of diapers, Michelle? I don't think retirement is happening anytime <laughs> soon to be honest. <laughs> but but no, you know, like uh ever since I've been on the show I've been talking about how, you know, there's so much benefits of being a quote unquote value investor, right? It's not about what happens in the market in the next minute, the next hour, the next day, month or even year for that matter. You have to start thinking long term. And I think becoming a father that realization has just set in a lot more where It's not about just, you know, maybe going out for like a fancy lunch or dinner here or there, but it's also thinking about how to try and use that saving nest egg to ensure that your next generation can be well supported for. And I think that's something that has really driven the point home this past six weeks.
0: All right. So the going out is continuing
1: then. (laughs) (laughs) Well, given the COVID thing, not particularly, but yes. I I, I mean, the whole, the whole, uh, the way I look at investing is, you need to educate yourself enough to a point that, sure, if you actually enjoy it, then by all means, you know, like single name stocks and sector analysis, et cetera. But even if not, I think it's the basic necessity now of anyone yeah. who earns money to be able to be somewhat financially literate. Mm-hmm. So you don't need to be able to understand the valuation of Apple, Right. But knowing whether either a relationship manager or some online website that's telling you that you can earn 24% per annum as a guaranteed fixed return, like this whole nickel uh, scam that happened in Singapore. It's stuff like that that you need to be smart enough and not be greedy, like, you know, both aspects, not be greedy and as well as be smart. to Just be able to try and circumvent all of these kinds of pitfalls that all of us investors face. Uh, be it for, you know, a future nest egg or for trying to beat the market, quote unquote, and generate alpha returns. So I would like to think that as long as I can educate her enough to not chase mean stocks, I think Uh, I would have done uh, half my job as a good uh, parent.
0: You know, speaking of that nickel scam, word of that when it was um, thriving had actually reached my ears. And the moment I heard 15% per quarter returns or 60% per annum, my hackles went up, you know, the red flags went up. So yeah, I think learning to invest, learning what the possible red flags are, are, you know, an essential part of adulthood, so to say, or becoming an adult. And I just wonder, you know, when it comes to basic investing um, and under basic principles of investing, Arun, did your dad or anybody at home help you out? Was that seen as a basic uh, skill that you needed to, to learn from get-go?
1: You know, luckily enough, I guess, my dad is big into investing into single-name stocks. So I think that's Mm. where I got it from. And this is like back in the day, right? I used to remember him bring a bag back home in which literally the share certificates used to be physically present in. And then he used to like go through the entire list and think, okay, you know what, should I get rid of these? Should I keep these into the locker for like the next 10 years? And all of that. And I, you know, it's it's these funny, uh, firstly, like my memory is really poor, right? (laughs) Of my childhood at least. But it's these funny things like just that one snippet. I remember when I was just sitting at home and my dad walked in with this bag and took it out and all these bunch of papers were lying on the table. So, yeah, I mean, maybe it's a hereditary thing to some extent, but uh, I don't know, I guess at least looking at the elder generation, I guess, uh, taking a certain interest in something, at least opens up the avenue for the next generation to be at least curious about it. Doesn't mean that you'll definitely follow in the footsteps, mm-hmm. but at least that exposure, I think, is very important. I and that's so. why, you know, well Warren Buffett, right? Like he came up with these children finance education books because he's like it's important to at least teach them the basics from an early stage. Doesn't mean you need to become an investor does not mean you need to go about investing money in any way shape and form in fact he you know strongly suggests that people should just invest into the S&P 500 index mm. but it's important like that base level of education i think is extremely important
0: What a memory that is, coming back with a bag full of certificates. (laughs) Just amazing. Well, we're very glad that you're here with us here, sharing your expertise over the years when it comes to investment markets. So if I were to write a series of books for children on uh, financial education, I think I'd start on why they should never participate in a buy-now-pay-later scheme. (laughs) I'm just allergic to the – that's just me, okay? I like paying for everything uh, in full, in cash – head first. But uh, speaking of buy now, pay later, Apple is working on a service that's going to allow users to pay for purchases in installments. It's going to be working with uh, Goldman Sachs possibly as a partner, as lender for these loans. Now what happened was Apple shares fell after it announced plans to enter the BNPL ecosystem. So we take a step back. What do you think this new entry branching out for Apple means for the company? And do you think as a wave BNPL is really set to take the US by storm? It's already made quite a foray in the in Europe for
1: example. Right. So uh, Apple's roadmap was always going to be getting into financial services to some extent, right? And they adopted it in a very smart manner by partnering with one of the most marquee investment banks out there even with the advent of their Apple card that they announced uh, a year or something ago. Buy now pay later, it just follows down that path where given the way society and millennial spending is evolving, Mm. it seems like credit credit card spending is more and more on the downturn. And with the advent of buy now, pay later schemes, uh, a, a lot more people are deciding to go use that scheme of credit rather than credit cards. So to some extent, I guess it was a natural afterthought from Apple's perspective to get into this segment. I think what Apple has going for it in this buy now, pay later, and, you know, firstly, I would just like to say I 100% agree with what you said in the beginning of this, where this whole aspect or this whole sector of buy now, pay later is very confusing. Mm -hmm. But anyways, uh, Apple, you know, it makes a lot of sense, I feel, for Apple specifically, given the demographics and the type of audience that uses its product. It's not, Mm. uh, you know, people who are extremely financially poor or like, you know, backward or stuck in society. Mm. It's people who are relatively more affluent or are at least aspiring consumers of wanting a more higher end good. So from that regard, uh, one can imagine or one can hope to see the NPLs, a non-performing loan segment uh, by Apple using this BNPL is not going to be particularly high. So its user base tends to be a little bit more affluent, giving them, extending them a little bit credit by basically allowing them to buy a $1,500 iPhone in $500 installments over three months. Maybe it's not the worst of things that uh, Apple could do for its specific audience. So while, you know, the share price of Apple initially dipped, it actually recovered in the day. Uh, yesterday, it went yes. up another like 3-4% on the back of uh, JP Morgan's $175 price target, But what was affected quite a lot is the likes of Afterpay, Affirm. You know, these companies like you were highlighting in Europe, Australia, that are publicly traded, they're purely buy now, pay later, uh, publicly traded companies, Mm -hmm. they got hit a lot, right? They were down by eight to 10%. Because it just went to show that a certain retailer or a certain company, Mm -hmm. even if you might not be a two and a half trillion dollar market cap company, you can partner up with financial institutions and pull off this buy-now-pay-later scheme yourself. You don't need to keep uh, using another company and thereby having to pay them quite exorbitant uh, you know, merchant transaction fees. So that was the interesting thing that I saw in terms of the price action of Apple versus why I think for Apple it makes a lot of sense. Hmm. But coming to the next part of your segment, like the buy-now-pay-later scheme in general, mm-hmm. it's very surprising, right? Because... Uh, this is a way of lending credit, which people seem to love because they think that there aren't any hidden fees, quote-unquote, which there are, obviously. They're just because, hidden better. Uh, people they're think they're more better. transparent.
0: <laughs> and people think, oh, it's interest-free offerings. But, you know, look out. The fees are still there.
1: They're just hidden. It, it Exactly right. I mean, it's, it's the same thing if you do not pay those three monthly installments. Right. In this case that we talked about, like $500 each your late interest does start getting charged, which is exactly the same thing as having, say, a $1,500 credit card limit that you need to pay by the end of the month. Otherwise, you start getting charged on that. So it's so strange that people
0: are looking away from credit cards and looking towards these schemes when when they're very similar.
1: To me, I can see why people are going for this, because in a way, this is a little bit more like credit cards on steroids, right? Because unlike having to pay the entire amount by the end of that month, Over here, you get this flexibility, quote unquote, of paying it out over the next three months or in some cases, even one year. The problem, though, is that just starts overextending a whole host of consumers. These are people who might be like really wanting credit. Banks, the mainstream financial institutions are not providing it, presumably because their credit score is not worthwhile enough. But along comes this other mechanism that enables them to just, you know, input their name, address, phone number, and then you can go about uh, getting, uh, it's like a line of credit. And being part of Flow, you know, the credit management, fintech startup that I'm part of, Hmm. it's interesting to see, we work with lenders, right, because we help them trying to recover uh, their money on their NPL, either by buying the portfolio or by servicing it. We can see a number of these BNPL players that started struggling a lot during the COVID pandemic because suddenly these people who had purchased these electronic goods, they just ran away. And there was nothing you could do about it. And given that they were fintechs, a a lot of these, the smaller ones at least, their balance sheets were a lot more stretched, Mm. but they actually had to stop lending. Luckily, things have recovered relatively quickly, I would say, given the amount of credit that the central banks have started unleashing into the economies and all the government support measures but as a sector itself, to me, this brings about a lot more questions than answers. And I think it's 100 percent right on the part of MAS to question and to be very concerned about the space because it's literally credit cards and steroids to me.
0: That is such interesting insight that, you know, sometimes people can't pay just flee because you wouldn't be able to do that with a traditional credit card. The banks would be after you. The lawyers' letters would be after you. But I think what's interesting uh, with this whole divvying up of payments over time is that increasingly it's becoming part of life. I mean, we hear Microsoft putting PCs in the cloud with your Windows 365, so even Microsoft going towards a subscription model. So from a personal finance perspective, it's becoming even more important to be aware of how much of these little payments that are adding up that you're paying every month, I think.
1: Absolutely spot on, right? Like, gone on the days of, okay, I know I will be spending $800 for a PlayStation, followed by $250 for four games that I can at least play with for the next year or two years. Now it's become, you know what, just pay $20 a month and you get access to all this entertainment. And then comes along eight other channels of entertainment, and suddenly you're paying $160 a month, and then you're like, Oh, wow, where did all this money suddenly start disappearing?
0: Mm, everybody's taking a bit of that pie, bite of your salary these days. So. <laughs> really, really great points there, Arun. And I'm so excited at the start of the show to introduce you as a new father. I forgot to mention that Arun Pai is Chief Strategy Officer at Flow. Uh, joining us live right here on your money all right so we covered apple let's go move now to another major talking point and that is chinese companies now from a valuation standpoint arc invest kathy woods has been warning of a valuation reset do you think major chinese companies are losing value because of beijing's crackdown on data security
1: I mean, honestly, I'm shocked that Kathy Woods is even talking about valuations. But uh, given her 3,000 or something price target for Tesla, but who knows? Maybe she'll be proven right. Right? Uh, Chinese tech companies. Uh, to me, this whole DDR thing incident that occurred, it was extremely scary, and I'm honestly surprised the U.S. hasn't clamped down on this a lot, lot harder. You know, like you have companies. Across the globe, uh, wanting to be to take a slice out of the pie of the U.S. Uh, capital market system, right? Obviously, mm-hmm. it's it's the most uh, deep, it's the most uh, the the most amount of money, obviously by a long shot, to try to tap into these credit markets to raise billions of dollars to fund your growth plans. But you have companies, especially out of China, which you know the U.S. is obviously not the best friends with coming into your own backyard, taking a whole bunch of those billions, and then suddenly realizing, oh, wait a minute, you know what, sorry, the Chinese government is stopping my business. My share price is now down 30, 40%. So it, 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 I find it impossible that the company did not know, especially being, uh, having your entire business model in in a country like China that's controlled so heavily by the Communist Party, that you would not know about this before going to the U.S. to uh, publicly list. And I think that's going to bring about all sorts of lawsuits, not just for uh, Didi itself, mm-hmm. but for any future company uh, that decides to list uh, onto the U.S. exchange, especially if you're from China. Now, mm-hmm. on the other hand, it's not just a, it's not just a company, right? Mm-hmm. The government has made it abundantly clear that they're not going to look too kindly on Chinese tech companies that are basically monopolies to a very large extent. So I think you're stuck in, in between like a, a very very difficult space where you might not have access to the U.S. market and you definitely do not have the support of the Chinese government either.
0: So does that underpin Kathy Wood's point then that um, you know this is a bellwether and, and that one of the world's biggest themes, Chinese
1: tech stocks,
0: are possibly in trouble?
1: I think so. I I just don't see any way around this because this is not like a small slap in the wrist by the Chinese government on these stocks, right? What they did to Jack Ma, like that kind of fall from grace for a person who's basically been the poster boy of Chinese technology companies. I think that was just step number one. Along comes this DD crisis. Then you have, you know, CAC announcing that companies with a data of more than like a million users will need approval before they're listed overseas. I mean, a million users might be a lot if you're a startup or something, but in China, I mean, that's like a dime a dozen companies, right? So basically any company under the sun over there that has data of more than a million users will not be able to be approved to be listed overseas until they go through a very stringent check. So that, that first layer of getting an exit, quote unquote, for a startup, right? Because Mm. what's the holy grail? You set up your company, raise a bunch of capital from venture capital firms, maybe go into start getting into some private equity rounds also. And then you go and publicly list in the public market. All the investors are happy because they've gotten an exit, quote unquote. They're able to sell their shares in the open market. Founders get rich, life goes on. Now, when you kind of like chopped off the end part of it, which is the publicly listing part, that starts having a cascading effect on what will the valuations be, be it for companies that even do get approvals to get become public, because you never know what the Chinese government is going to do post facto of getting publicly traded, even in spite of getting approval, and then valuations in the private space also. And then I think one other aspect that I would love to touch upon mm-hmm. is the knock-on effect of the existing large technology companies. like. Let's take an example of Tencent, right? Uh, The parent company of uh, WeChat. They have been a huge investor into U.S. stocks, right? And something like more than half of the top 20 or 25 largest uh, capital raises by Chinese companies in the U.S., Tencent has played a huge part of it. The amount of money earned by Tencent via these investments, as in i.e. their share price going up, and the multiplied by the ownership stake in Tencent, that amount of money is multiple of the amount of money that Tencent actually makes in its underlying business. So it's kind of become like a Berkshire Hathaway in a way where your 100% owned businesses are you know, performing well, potentially, but the amount of money you've made, you know, in Berkshire Hathaway's case, Apple stock, in Tencent's case, these 10 or 15 technology companies that are listed in the U.S., these Chinese technologies companies that are listed in the U.S., their returns have far the their existing business. So what will the knock-on effects be on Tencent, on Alibaba, like on all these other large technology companies that maybe there was a certain amount of growth multiple that was factored in because of all these other investments? And I think it's all these other factors that are going to start coming to light and maybe it'll bring the entire sector's valuation to more realistic levels, mm-hmm. as uh, you know Kathy Wood was mentioning.
0: Interesting insight there on the knock-on effects. I mean, we're also seeing Alibaba and Tencent now considering collaborating with each other. You know, they considering opening up their services to each other, and it seems like um, they're they're trying desperately to work on whatever they can do in 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 the face of these restrictions that aren't going to go away. All right, Arun. Before we let you go, we still have a, a one more topic that we want to get your thoughts on. So. Airbnb, one of the most recognizable companies, right, for all of us. And I'm sure back in the days when we used airports, we all remember (laughs) heading first to an Airbnb and checking out our our options. Now, Gordon Haskett and analysts uh, analysts have double-graded Airbnb, double-upgraded it to a buy. This in spite the fact that it's underperformed for most of this year. So quite a lot of optimism being packed into that. What do you think? What's your outlook?
1: I do agree with that to some extent, to be honest. I think when, uh, you know, travel is already coming back to a very large extent in Europe and U.S. In Singapore, sadly, it's not because of not what's happening within the country's borders, but all around us, sadly, with the spike up in cases. But eventually we will get there. I'm, I'm quite sure of that. But what is that eventuality going to be? I feel it's going to be a lot more of personal travel or maybe even some kind of like a longer term business travel. It's not going to be your day flights to, say, a Jakarta or Manila, because you know you can kind of do that using Zoom or any other video conferencing software. Mm-hmm. So that kind of plays some nice tailwind to Airbnb's model, right? Because the question I think all of us travelers are now going to have in the future is safety, right? Like, where do you find yourself to be in a safer place? Is it in individual properties where there hasn't been a congregation of people, but at the same time, you're not 100% sure whether it's clean to an industrial standard or not. Or you can obviously go after the big brands like the Marriott's, Hyatt's, the Acors of the world, and know fully well that, you know, I'm sure that they can care of the cleaning aspect quite well, but there'll be thousands of people going through those corridors and touching those doors and so on and so forth. So I think in the short term, at least, especially when uh, personal travel is going to come back much quicker, I feel, that'll provide a nice boost to Airbnb. And hence, you know, I don't know about a double upgrade or not, but uh, I do feel given the valuations of where, in spite of the the decent rise that Airbnb has had, maybe not this year, but definitely towards the latter end of uh, last year, I do feel the share price is quite attractive for that.
0: Interesting, yeah. And some say Airbnb also benefiting from a very slow pace of return to normal office work. Arun, as always, thank you for your terrific insights and uh, congratulations again on becoming O. Thank
1: you so much, Michelle, and look forward to speaking to you next week.
0: Arun Pai, Chief Strategy Officer at Flow, helping us demystify market talk.
1: Before acting on the information on Money FM,
0: please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance.